the audio didn't work last time, try, try again. My text editor, I can't change the font size, so ne next time I'll have a different text editor. Uh, question, most people managed to figure out how to do it. It took me how to get into SmartSight. It took me 20 minutes to figure out how to read your answers. You have to click five times to see each answer. It's brilliant. Um, why is the first term in curly brackets an equation before 416 constant? So that term was a function of r, the second term was a function of theta and phi. They add up to a constant, which was zero. So each term must be a constant if they add up to a constant, since they depend on different variables. That's the not okay. And uh, people were confused about um, how separation of variables can work in general. The answer is that it doesn't work in general. You just have to be lucky. So if you have a nice problem, you try separation of variables, and if it works, then it works. And if it doesn't work, then no one promised you it was going to work. But that's how life is. So are there any more questions about separation of variables? Because I spent so long trying to figure out how to click on the right thing, I didn't get through everyone's um, interesting slash confusing thing. But uh, next time, uh, hopefully. So are there any questions about smart site? Everyone's uh, copacetic. So um, some people have a problem with the proposed midterm date, which was October 25th. Um, it's possible we could move it to October 22nd. <coughs> Anybody have a problem with that's a Friday instead of the Monday? It's the same as E&M. Same as E&M. We have two hours of tests. Okay, that's not going to work. Um, For a little work, it just won't be good. <laughs> okay, um, I'll come up with yet another plan. Okay. Take them, yeah. That's take-homes are fine, you just have to make them a lot harder than okay. the in-class one. All right. So, uh, you guys did 1D last quarter. Now we're ready to take off into three dimensions. So, we'll write down the Schrodinger equation. So, it's a function of a vector r and a time, three, ve three vector. So, the time derivative is equal to the Hamiltonian acting on the wave function. And uh, classically, we know what the Hamiltonian is. It's 1 half mv squared plus a potential, which in three dimensions, we can write 1 half mv squared as 1 over twice the mass plus px squared plus py squared plus pz squared. And when you studied quantum mechanics in one dimension, you figured out that momentum has to correspond to an operator that's the spatial derivative. So it has to have an h-bar over i. So I'm going to take all these notes for you, so don't, don't panic. Um, and then we just do the same thing for each guy. They're all going to be h-bar over i times the appropriate derivative. <coughs> Thank <laughs> you.
so we can write the Schrodinger equation in 3D as the gradient squared Laplacian plus the potential term. And if we use uh, Cartesian coordinates, then the gradient squared is something simple. When we use spherical coordinates, it's a little more interesting. So now the probability is supposed to be given by the wave function. So the probability per unit volume is the wave function at a point absolute value squared. So that's obviously a complex conjugate of the wave function <coughs> itself. And we have to normalize the wave function somehow. You're writing below the oops. Okay. Just uh, yell at me when I do that. I'm new to this technology. So if we integrate the wave function over all space, which is now a three-dimensional space, so over all space, the pro total probability that the particle is there is one. So that integral should be normalized so that, that it's one. And then we'll get with that normalization, we get the probability density at each point. Now to make life sim, yep. Usually, we'll treat we'll have a separate wave function for each particle. Each one is one, and. Uh, Usually, like when we do the hydrogen atom, we'll imagine the proton is very heavy. And so it's in some approximation, you can just treat it as a classical thing that's just sitting there not moving. Um, you, can <coughs> you can do things a little more fancier than that, but the, it's better to, it's easier to have a single wave function for each particle. And um, to make our life simple, we're gonna consider time independent potentials for about a month or a month and a half until we build up our quantum mechanics muscles. And then we can use the separation of variables. In that case, it would be nice to try that the wave function is some function of time times some function of space. So I'll make it a lowercase psi when it's just a function of space. And then our Schrodinger equation looks like this. The time derivative only acts on the phi, and the gradient squared only acts on the psi.
Um, <coughs> so we can divide that, what we had there, through by both wave functions. This should be painfully familiar because you did it in your reading, at least for spherical coordinates. So we'll get something with just phi on one side and psi on the other side. Now the left-hand side is only a function of t, so it's independent of r. And the right-hand side is independent of t. So we can use our separation of variables trick. Each side must be a constant. And we'll cleverly choose that constant to be called e because we know the answer. That always helps. If you want to save time on exams, just know the answer before you start the question. Um, so <coughs> if we call that thing E, then we can multiply, take the left-hand side, set it equal to E, and multiply it through by phi, and we get an equation that you know how to solve. Um, so the solution is phi is a constant, times e to the minus i e t over h bar. And on the right-hand side, you can also multiply through by psi, and we'll get an equation that just involves psi. And now it's an easier equation to solve than what we had before. It still has the kinetic term and the potential, but those things just add up to a constant times the wave function. So that's the time-independent Schrodinger equation, which you saw last quarter. All we did was change that single derivative into a gradient squared. Then if we want a solution of this, uh, of the general, the time-dependent equation and this for a time-independent potential, can write the most general solution as a sum over each of the energy eigenstates. So we don't have to be in a particular energy eigenstate. We could be in a superposition of different energies. Then each energy eigenstate will have its e to the mi minus i e n t over h bar, and they'll have their own each of them has their own spatial wave function. And then we can make a superposition of all those energy eigenstates in general. And sometimes the energy eigenvalues are not discrete. Sometimes they're continuous. So then instead of the sum, you'd have an integral. So there, we've solved the, it's solved. Um, we actually want to look at some sp special cases to see something interesting. Are there any questions at this point, though? So, we're going to do the 3D infinite well. <coughs> Otherwise known, a.k.a. the box. So, you did the 1D version uh, on page 30. 
At least, it was on page 30, I assume you guys covered page 30 last quarter. If you didn't, go back to page 30. So our potential, which is time independent, will be zero inside the box and infinity outside the box. So inside the box, x will be between zero and Lx, y will be between zero and Ly, z will be between zero and Lz. There's a hole in the wrong place. So if the potential is infinite outside the box, what's the probability of finding the particle outside the box? Zero. You guys did that problem. Uh, well, unless you happen to have an infinite supply of energy lying around. So, we'll practice drawing a box. So we'll call this x, y, z. Let's see. Yeah, it's sort of like a box. So this is Ly, this is Lx, this is Lz. You guys already knew what a box looked like. So now, what should we do? How do we solve this problem in a box? You solved it in 1D before. Well, we've only learned one trick today, so we'll just use that trick again. <coughs> Separation of variables. So our function, oops. Our function psi of r, we'll assume, is function capital X of x, capital Y of y, capital Z of z. And we'll plug that into our time-independent Schrodinger equation. And we'll get e times the functions x, y, z have to be equal to minus h bar squared over 2m. And then the derivatives only act on one function each time. So the first time, they only act on x. Second time, they only act on y. Third time, they only act on z. And I didn't leave any room for the potential. But inside the box, the potential is zero, so we don't need it. And outside the box, the wave function is zero, so we don't need that equation either. But I could have written, if it wasn't such a simple potential, I would have had v times x, y, z. Now if we divide through by x, y, z, So the y and z will cancel in the first term, and we'll get 1 over x, d squared x, dx squared, and then the same thing for the other guys. Oops. 1 over y, 
d squared y dy squared plus 1 over z d squared z dz squared and now potential 0 if we're inside the box. So the first term is only a function of x, the second term is only a function of y, third term is only a function of z, they add up to a constant each of them must be constant. So we'll call the constant, including the h-bar squared, oops, not the h-bar squared, we'll call the con each of these constants inside the parentheses, uh, we'll call the first one, kx squared, ky squared, kz squared. And so the function for the equation for x is d squared dx, dx squared equals Let me include this constant out front, sorry. It'll save time. So it's minus kx squared times the wave function. So that's the equation we have to solve, and we know that at some special values, at little x equal to zero, the wave function has to vanish because outside the wave function is zero. And if we had a discontinuity and wave function, you guys learned last quarter that that costs an infinite amount of energy, so better be continuous. And it also has to vanish at x equals lx, the other side of the box. <coughs> and so the solutions of this equation are sines and cosines. But because we chose our coordinates in a clever way. Uh, the wave function vanishes at x equals zero, so we know it's just a sine. There's no cosine. So there's some normalization constant and then a sine of x kx. Now, so it just automatically satisfies our boundary condition at x equals zero. But what about at x equals lx? Not so automatic. So we need sine of lx kx equal to zero. That means kx lx has to be some integer times pi. So kx has to be that integer times pi over the length of that box. And that's exactly what happened in the 1D case. So now in the 3D case, we find the energy. Oops. Oh, I misled you guys. 
the kx doesn't include that factor outside because each of those guys inside is the constant. And then we'll s to find the energy, we'll put that factor back in. <sighs> so which of the three three different ways I said it is right? I'm so is, is it plus kx squared or minus kx um, I'm keeping the minus sign from out here and here so that we get sines and cosines. If we had uh, exponentials, then we couldn't make it vanish on both sides. Okay, so the energy. And I guess the way I've done it, So the energy is h bar squared over 2m. There's a kx squared from the first term, a ky squared from the second term, kz squared from the third term. And we know those are given by some quantum numbers. nx and y and nz. forgot the and so we can label so we got three quantum numbers because there was three dimensions <coughs> we got one quantum number when it was one dimension we get quantum number for each dimension so we can label our energy eigenstates by three integers nx and y and z and our wave function is function of x y and z some normalization constant and sine nx pi over lx sine ny pi y over ly and sine nz pi z over lz so what's the lowest energy state Um, okay. They're integer values. They're integer values. The lowest possible integer value is 1 because if you set it equal to 0, then the wave function will vanish. then it's zero everywhere inside the box. Oh. So then there's no particle. So if we pick a special case, it makes uh, life a little simpler. All the lengths of the box are the same, so it's a cube. 
then the formulas are slightly prettier. The energy of the lowest state is sum of 1 squared 3 times times pi squared h bar squared over 2m l squared. And we can call that 3e1. And now, if the sides of the box are all the same, then we have lots of degeneracies for the excited states. Because x, y, and z are all the same. So if I choose all three integers the same, then how many possible states are there? Yes? One? Oh. One. Uh, because if I chose 3, 6, and 12, oops, if I chose them all the same, 3, 3, and 3, then if I interchange 3 and 3, nothing changed, so that's the same state. If I choose 2 the same, then there's 3 states, because I can put the odd, guy, the one odd man out in, in each one of the 3 slots. And if they're all different, then there are six states, at least. There's a curveball. Because uh, if I look at three, the energy of the 333 state, three squared plus three squared plus three squared used to be 27. But if I look at 511, 5 squared plus 1 squared plus 1 squared is also 27. So what's the significance of that? Yep. Energy levels have degeneracy. Yeah, the energy levels have a degeneracy. But it's not from interchanging x, y, and z. So it doesn't come from a symmetry. It just comes from random dumb number theory luck. So it's called an accidental degeneracy because it's, it doesn't have a physics reason. It just has a, a numerology reason. <coughs> so if you're an experimentalist and you're trying to figure out what state it's in, you measure its energy you're in trouble because you can't distinguish these two if you only measure, measure the energy. <coughs> yep? Well, you could, uh, you could try to measure its position in each of the directions, yeah. But before we do that, I just want to do an order of magnitude calculation. So if we have an electron, in a one nanometer cube, what's what's the appropriate scale of the energy? So if we look at the ground state, we have three pi squared h bar squared over two ml squared. So there's three times three point one four h bar is 1.055 times 10 to the minus 34 <coughs> joules seconds. 
squared. Mass of an electron is 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms. And a nanometer is 10 to the minus 9 meters. Square and your pi. Um, pi squared. So if you have a calculator handy, that should be 10 to the minus 19 joules, which means that we're not going to use joules. So we can convert. Uh, who remembers what an ED is in joules? 10 to the minus 20? Hmm? 19? That sounds good. <coughs> so then we'll get about one electron volt. Oops. So, uh, a nanometer is about the size of an atom. So when we study atoms, we shouldn't be surprised if the typical energies are electron volts, because that's there's we have a wave function inside a box. It's got a certain wave number, which is just determined by the size of the box, and that fixes the energy. Of course, there's also going to be some potential energy, but uh, there are things like the Virial theorem, which help us out. So. Any questions here? This is supposed to be the easy warm-up lecture. So if I have the state 1, 2, 1, what are the most probable positions for our electron? So there's a very sophisticated way to figure this out. Draw the wave function. There's a sign for the x direction where nx is 1. Uh, then I'll draw one for the y direction. It's got a node in the middle because ny is 2. And then I'll draw it for the z direction. It's only got nodes on the edges. So for x, most probable position is L over 2. For y, most probable positions are L over 4 and 3L over 4. They're equally likely. And for z, it's L over 2 again. All very easy. People in the back look bored. You need to speed up or something. Do something harder. So, what if we reduce the symmetry of this problem? How do we reduce the symmetry? Make the lengths different. <coughs> What'll happen to our degeneracies then? We'll split the degeneracies. So let's just make one of them different. We'll make LX and LY still equal to L, and we'll change LZ 
we'll make it 10% uh, smaller. Then if we look at the 211 state, Now there's still a degeneracy. I can interchange x and y, but not the x's and z's. So that energy is the same as if I had the 1, 2, 1 state. But it's split from the 1, 1, 2 state. Because the last term is enhanced by squeezing the box. We get more energy. So E211 equals E121, but that's less than E112. So if we draw the spectrum of energy levels as a function of 1 over LZ, starting at 1 over L, then our ground state, 111, as we make LZ smaller, so 1 over LZ bigger, that energy goes up. And then if we look at uh, these two states that would are degenerate when LZ equals LX and LY, 1, 1, 2 splits off. from the 211 and the 121. And then if we had another axis, we could draw it uh, or we change LY as well. <coughs> so if you're studying uh, atomic spectra and you have degenerate levels, what could you do to split them? Hmm? Magnetic field, did you say? Yeah? Or yeah, you can apply magnetic fields or electric fields. Just mess it up. And then you can split off the energy levels. See how many different ones there are. Any questions? If there's no questions, we're going to start spherical coordinates. Very scary. So, we're going to assume that our potential we'll assume our potential is just a function of the distance from the origin, so it's spherically symmetric. I'm going to get to Draw drawing again. 
So we have x, y, z, and this is some generic point. Line should go straight down. Should have drawn that longer. And so we'll measure the angle from the z-axis because we like z. This is our vector r. So the height z is r cos theta. The y value will be r sine theta. And we'll measure from the x-axis an angle phi. So we'll get a sine phi. And x will be r sine theta cos phi. And then, in E and M, you're supposed to learn the Laplacian and spherical coordinates. So I don't have to drive it. You guys already do it. So it's this beautiful formula. Fortunately, I have it written down. Otherwise, there would be no chance that I could write this down. <coughs> and the volume element dx, dy, dz, it's a d, but in spherical coordinates, it's r squared dr sine theta d theta d phi. I can actually remember that one. So, if we have this nice, it should be a d, if we have this nice potential, If we have this nice potential that's spherically symmetric, then you learned in your reading that you again get to apply separation of variables. So we have a wave function that's a function of r theta and phi, and we'll assume it's a function of r times a function of theta <coughs> times a function of phi. And then we'll just stick that in our time-independent Schrodinger wave function. And we're going to write the potential on the side with the energy. So it'll be E minus V of R. And instead of writing M for the mass, I used another cheat you learned in classical mechanics, the reduced mass. Has anyone seen the reduced mass in classical mechanics? So you know how to derive that too? <coughs> Derivation works in quantum mechanics. If you don't remember that, just pretend that uh, mass 2 is much, much bigger than mass 1. And then it just reduces to mass 1 and then you didn't have to know about the reduced mass. Thank you.
but eventually, if you want to get a precise calculation of the hydrogen spectrum, which we certainly do, <coughs> then uh, you need to know about the reduced mass. So, so there's some, <coughs> we're imagining there's some particle at the origin that's the heavy guy, and it's producing this potential. So eventually we want to do hydrogen. It doesn't have to be. If there isn't a second particle, there's just a potential made out of midair, midair like a our box. Then we just use the mass of the particle moving in the potential. It's there can there could be a particle at the origin, and it's an accident of three dimensions somehow that you can reduce. In the not non-relativistic physics, you can reduce a two-body problem to a one-body problem. When it gets relativistic, then that doesn't work anymore. But we're not very relativistic here. I'm saving that. Do you guys get any relativity? Just in E&M or? Pardon? Here and there. Okay. It's not like it's important or anything. Okay. So. We're going to plug in, we have a function of r, a function of theta, a function of phi. We plug it in. Each derivative only acts on the corresponding function. So we'll get some nice big mess. So the functions theta and phi come out of the radial derivatives. Functions r and phi come out of the theta derivatives. And the functions r and theta come out of the phi derivatives. through by the functions r, theta, and phi, we'll get three terms that are going to turn out to be constants. through by r squared on both sides. No, we don't want to do that. Did you pick we do. Extra squared on the sine term on the last term? Uh, it's squared there, but it's not on the top. Yeah, there was one there. You just couldn't see it because I didn't write it. <laughs> so, written this way, 
this guy is the only one that has uh, phi dependence. The other guys don't have any phi dependence, so this guy must be a constant. Uh, that one up here. Uh, there was a one over little <coughs> r squared multiplying the whole left side. Oh, just, right here. just worrying about the phi dependence first. It's our equation for the function phi. There's some constant times phi. So if that constant is bigger than zero, the solutions are exponentials. If that constant is less than zero, then the solutions are sine and cosine. Yeah, but I could I could multiply through by sine squared theta. As long as I can isolate the phi dependence for the moment. So, which is it going to be? <coughs> Exponential or sine and cosine? Hmm? Has to be periodic. Because this is spherical coordinates. Phi means I go around in a circle. If I go through 2 pi, I'm back where I started. So it better be a periodic function. So it can't be the case that this constant is bigger than zero. It must be less than zero. So we'll give it a name that tells us that it's negative. We'll call it minus m squared. And now it's very convenient that we call it the mass mu. Otherwise, we'd be hopelessly confused. So m is just some, as it turns out, dimensionless constant. And let's write down the solutions. So I claim that's the general solution, even though I because I'm writing my sines and cosines as an exponential with an imaginary argument. And the whole point was that we wanted this to be periodic. So when we add 2 pi to phi, the wave function should be the same. That means either i 2 pi m has to be equal to 1. So that means m is an integer. So we can have 0, plus or minus 1, plus or minus 2. <coughs> so what the book didn't tell you is what is, what is the meaning of m. Focus. So M is some quantum number. 
what? And I think well, we have one minute left. So I'll tell you next time. You can think about it. Are there any questions?